This is probably my second favorite episode thus far. Immediately behind Duet. This is one of those rare episodes where everything just kind of clicks together perfectly. As the original idea going into the episode was, how did Kira and Odo meet? And the rest of the episode, by all accounts, just flowed naturally from that. I love the dichotomy of the presentation of the past versus the present, and it's understandable why so many episodes in the future would go back to the era of Terraknor and the occupation. Because it's... I mean, it's horrible. Let's, let's make that very, very clear. But it, from a uh, visual and from an audio and from a storytelling perspective, there's an engagement and an automatic interest in this particular environment. I also want to give huge props to René Bergenois. He effectively plays two characters in this episode. Odo and Odo how he used to be. And the two of them are very, very different. I also want to give special props to the director who managed to do... Um, basically, he managed to shoot the scenes very noir style, getting specific angles on specific characters that are designed to emphasize an emotion in addition to whatever the character is saying at the moment, and managed to do some wonderful transitions, which, of course, goes in props to both the directing and the editing team. I love pretty much every transition in this film, or excuse me, in this episode. Fantastic stuff. Nothing but praise for it. So, <clears throat> I also have to admit, I didn't guess the Kira thing when I, when I first saw this episode. Spoilers. But I did guess the collaboration thing almost immediately. And that's another reason I love this episode. It is a well-constructed mystery. And a well-constructed mystery, in my opinion, is not designed to surprise or shock the audience. It is designed to allow the audience to deduce what's going along, going on along with the characters. All of the pieces are there. One of the very first things I noticed was that wife, what's-her-face, the widow, had a very nice styled hair with a very nice dress with very nice earrings. This is a woman used to living above her means, or basically living as if she is well off financially. Then she gives an offhand line about the power being out, and as Oda mentions later, that's because she ran out of money. This is a woman who, even during the occupation, when we see her in the past, is doing very well. And all these pieces are here. Um, my favorite is little the, the, the jewelry she's wearing in her hair. And her nicely styled hair. In total contrast to every other Bajoran we see in the past, including Kira herself. There's also the fact that they have their own private shop. And that the, the alchemist in question was able to get a hold of certain teas. They kept mentioning that. It's, in fact, it's mentioned four times in the episode. And it's mentioned how rare and expensive it is to procure that. They even lay the pieces there that he was actually getting it through Quark with the additional resources he had at his, at, at, you know, on hand because he was a collaborator. Because he was someone who was part of Ducat's spy network. So yeah, he was well off. And all of those pieces are there, and I love that. But then, I, this is where it caught me. I'm like, well, hang on. What? Like, like her being behind the quark thing and her being behind the list thing makes perfect sense. Why would she ever go after her husband? Oh, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. And that's one of the things I love about the episode. It's actually two mysteries. One from five years ago, 
and one during the now. The mystery during the now, you know, chung, 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 okay, it's her, she's doing it, blah, blah, blah. The, the episode doesn't even try to hide the fact that she is complicit in these affairs. But the mystery from the past is almost treated as secondary in importance, which is funny because if you think about it from the construction of the long-term narrative, the past mystery is the far more important one. I'll get more to that later, though. <clears throat> um, also, quick aside, they mentioned that all the other collaborators were able to give her a large sum of money each. Now, I mentioned that because I have a private theory, and it doesn't need to be true, and it probably isn't true, but I like to think that they are still Cardassian collaborators. I like to think that even though the occupation has ended, the, if nothing else, obsidian order, never mind the actual Cardassian Union government, still maintains Bajoran agents on Bajor, and as such, these people are still well taken care of and can swallow, yeah, here, here's 100,000 quatlus or whatever, here you go, enjoy. My opinion. I also like to think that after her incredibly crude and crass blackmail, she would have burned through the money again and then would have been right back to square one with nothing to show for it. Because she strikes me as someone who uh, doesn't have a brain, to put that as bluntly as possible. <laughs> as a quick aside, one thing I've heard several people speculate on is the identity and purpose of the other guy. The guy who basically says like two lines of dialogue, uh, three, excuse me, lines of dialogue in the whole episode, and is the one who kills Quark and then attempts to kill him again. Now, in my opinion, that guy is a Bajoran... Um, I don't know how to say this. <laughs> a guy with the Bajorans who is part of the resistance movement who is trying to root out the collaborators. In other words, I think that he decided to group with her. Probably she actually reached out to him, or at least to their network, and said, hey, I might be able to find some collaborators. All I ask is that you let me blackmail them before you kill them. That way they get what they want, revenge, and she gets what she wants, money. It's a nice little trifecta there. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I also love the the joke Odo gives. Oh, the, these humans have so many records and lists that they had to shrink them down to microscopic lest they overwhelm all that they own. Now, that's an obviously a good joke because Lord knows we do have a, quite a bit of a need for record keeping in real life, never mind the Federation. I don't even want to think about the bureaucracy of the Federation. But what I find funny is that that's also a character-revealing moment. Of course Odo doesn't see the need for records. He has perfect memory. If every human being had perfect memory, we wouldn't have as much of a cultural, uh, I, I don't want to use the word obsession, but fixation on record-keeping as we do. Now, we would still keep records because, you know, truth and who knows what he's thinking or maybe he might not share this or whatever, but it probably wouldn't be as big. I'd keep tons of notes because... I don't have perfect memory. I keep pictures over here because I don't have perfect memory. You know, I mean, this, this isn't a hard thing to understand. If you're Odo, you want to remember someone you love, you just close your eyes for a second. Hey, you don't, probably don't have to close your eyes, and bam, there they are. You can probably just play a video of some interaction you've had with them. When you have perfect memory, it's a little different. Now, I also love that this episode is the first signs of them doing something, really doing something with Rom's character. Up until now, Max Grodenchik hasn't been allowed to do anything other than play typical Ferengi. 
Now, this is, in my opinion, a shame, because Max Grodinchik is actually pretty good at what he does. Uh, he's a little bit of a niche actor, but he's good at that niche. And if you've paid attention over in TNG, in the episodes we haven't covered yet, but of course have happened by the time, this time in real life, those, you know, he's played nothing but typical Ferengi. You know, <laughs> I'm stupid and evil and, and selfish and greedy. <laughs> Rom has been portrayed as that way pretty much up until this episode. We finally start to see some additional layers and depths to him. Uh, you could argue that that started in Rules of Acquisition. I don't personally agree all that much. I think that was still him basically being a typical Ferengi. I think now we're starting to see, you know, the engineering expertise, the weird semi-loyalty, but also semi-disloyalty. Like, you could almost see how he's trying to bully himself into being a typical Ferengi in this episode. Because, like, the first thing, he's like, oh my god, you're right. The bar could be mine. And that didn't even occur to him. And he's like, yes, no, the bar's mine. Now I have to focus on that, and, and so forth and so on. Um, I also love to see the general professionalism in this episode. There's only a few tidbits with Cisco and Bashir and Kira uh, in, the, in the present, obviously. <laughs> but all of them are very professional and very strict for, straightforward. And it is funny to me how, despite everything, they are all very much on board with both helping Quark and getting to the bottom of the situation. I do like that. I also... Uh, huh? Oh. I also like how uh, smoothly Odo and Sisko naturally good cop and bad cop Rom into telling them the truth. It's not like Rom is particularly good at enduring an interrogation anyways, right? So... <clears throat> Then we see the first clip into the past, as Odo, with his perfect memory, starts remembering the past. Now, I didn't just mention the perfect memory thing for no reason. I, well, I mean, obviously there was the reason about the record-keeping thing. But it's relevant because it means what we see in this episode is the truth. Now, this is important because there will be later episodes, and Star Trek has done this before, and many works of fiction have done this before, where what we see in the past is something tainted or affected by opinion or perspective. Whereas what we are seeing here is effectively a photocopy exact record of what Odo saw back then. So we can take everything we see in the past in this episode as absolute truth. That's what actually happened. Um... We'll discuss more about that in future episodes where it comes up, because not every shot of Terok Nor is going to be an accurate shot of Terok Nor, and that's important to keep in mind. This one, however, this is just straight up how it is, and we also know how incredibly observant Odo is. It's established several times in this episode. Let's talk about Goldicott very briefly. Now, this was well into the occupation, a mere five years ago, so Dakot has been in charge for a bit. I forget who it is, someone on YouTube once sat down and put together all of the appearances of Gul Dukat in the past in order, as in in chronological order in setting. It is interesting to see how much Dukat changed over the course of his tenure at, at Terok Nor, and that's all I'm going to say about that right now. But this is fairly well in. This is a Dukat who is pretty used to the wonderful rigors of the job at this point in time, and I'm saying that with full sardonicism. He is, um, well, there's no nice way to say this. While I do think Dukat is not a good person, I can without hesitation say that he is yet another victim of the Cardassian Union, basically being forced into this horrible situation, and he bends or breaks, as your particular opinion on the matter. 
This is e most easily shown when he asks Odo, have you seen a dead body before? Yes, in your minds. Notice how aggressive Odo says that line, by the way. And then Dukat says, no, no, no. No, those are casualties. This is murder. Ouch. Now, that is not exactly pleasant. But then he mentions another line, and this got me thinking. One of the things that's weird about Dukat is we know very few truths about what's going on in his mind. While several other characters, we can say with high certainty what they're thinking or what they're feeling, Dukat, the internal side of Dukat is something that we have to debate, because we don't know. Because he lies, and he has a very strong trait of self-delusion. This is something that, that's hard to debate. He, he clearly presents himself mentally in a different way than he actually is. This also, there's also some out-of-character reasons for this, which I've actually already discussed, so I'm not going to retread that ground. All I want to mention here is that he mentions that his superiors say, in order to solve this murder, I should select ten random Bajorans and execute them. Now, is that true? I don't know. Now, I'd believe that without hesitation. The overall Cardassian leadership of the occupation was disgusting and a mess. Again, crimes of the Cardassian Union. I'm going to use that phrase again, and I have used it many times before. But it's possible that Dukat's just saying that to try and get Odo on his side. He is capable of that kind of manipulation. He has no problems with those kind of lies. Unlike most of the other characters in this story, he is a very good liar. So, <clears throat> I know I've already said this, but I really do have to give wonderful, wonderful praise to René Bergenois. He, in the past scenes, he is much, like, he's almost motionless half the time. Mostly only moving his head, without, with barely even moving his chest or his arms at all. And it makes this, his appearance seem almost like a simulacra, like, a, like an imperfect simulacra. Given what we know about him already and will learn in the future, that makes sense. This is someone who has tried to mimic and emulate human natural interactions and is still getting the hang of that. So he, he has the ability to do things like, like head motions and gestures, but he's still learning the basics of it. And it's very robotic, very unnatural, like he's trying to force it. Now, I personally empathize with that a lot. Uh, when I was much younger... And I've talked about this before on my show, so I don't have a problem mentioning it now. I had problems presenting how I really felt. I would feel. I was not a robot. I was not sociopathic. I would actually feel things and think things, but I didn't. it didn't naturally express itself in my face or in my motions or in my tone. I had to learn that over time so I could better interact with other people. Nowadays, it's almost secondhand because I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, I'm very accustomed to acting out my real emotions. So I can kind of sympathize where Odo's coming from. I remember what I was like in school. I was actually a kid. I'm sorry for the segue. There was actually a kid back in, uh, this would have been fourth grade, who used to make fun of me at first because he thought I was angry all the time. But when he confronted me finally about it, and he said, so why are you angry all the time? I said, well, I'm not. No, I didn't say it like that. It was, it was much more flat. I am not. What are you talking about? Well, you're, you're, you're angry all the time. You're scowling. I am. Yeah, and 
And I ended up becoming friends with this kid. And as we kind of talked through it, because he was like, yeah, you're, you're doing this thing. Your shoulders are kind of hunched forward and your fists are clenched. Well, of course my fists are clenched. It feels weird having my hands open. Well, why don't you use your pockets instead? If you've ever seen me in person, I'm sure most of you haven't, I tend to have my hands in my pockets to this very day to help with the hand movement thing. Because I was the same kind of thing. I didn't know how to present myself. So I love those little touches with Odo. It also shows in his tone and his manner of speech. He's very hesitant and uncertain when it comes to anything about social dynamics at all. When he talks to the wife, I am sorry for your loss, you can almost hear him say it as if he's reading from a script because he's heard other people say that or words to that effect. His tone is also wonderfully off. I, 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 I can't quite mimic it because it is literally incorrect. You know, and if you don't understand what I mean by tone, you'll notice how, and I'm, I've been doing it for the last few sentences, so I hope you're paying attention. One of the things I've been doing is kind of raising up my volume and then increasing my, the speed at which I talk until kind of concluding the sentence. And you see how I kind of do, da, 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 da. there's a natural tone to that to give an audio indicator of where I'm going. And of course, there's ways to, you know, inflect specific emotion or, oh gosh, you know, I can't fake it. I'm not really good at faking it, as weird as it, because I can only fake emotions I'm actually feeling. But, you know, that's why I'm a bad actor. But, you know, there's ways to be like, um, you know, oh, gosh, you know, I hugs, hey, you know, whatever. There's all those tones that we have naturally. You can tell that Odo is trying to affect that, but doesn't know how to. And therefore, it comes off as just a little bit robotic. It's not completely robotic. It's much more subtle than what I just did. But he still does a wonderful job of it. It's also true his discomfort when he talks with Kira for the first time ever uh, later. And it is kind of funny to see what is effectively such a momentous interaction. The first time Kira and Guido, or Kira, wow, sorry, Guido just messaged me. Kira and Odo, they're very similar names, what do you want from me? Uh, talking for the first time. I also uh, really, really like the observation skills. I know I've already commented on that, but it is great to see how observant he is in general. He doesn't even say you don't look like you've been crying. He flat out says the, the area directly under the blah, 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 should be blah, blah, blah. You haven't been crying. She's just like, I, I, I've just been too angry. Uh-huh. And his tone becomes much more self-assured, confident, and calm when he is analyzing. That's what he's used to. That's what's normal for him. That's where he's comfortable. So, love the transitions. I really absolutely do. There's this great... They're all over the place. I'm not going to name every single one. Um, and I really love the way they build up the suspense in just the right way. It's the type of suspense where we know what the characters don't. I've talked about this before, the whole Hitchcock thing. And so it's like, here, there, that's the woman that's been with my husband. Look, and it's Kira. Now that means nothing to Odo, and it means nothing to anyone in universe, but that means a whole lot to us, doesn't it? So, Odo and Kira meet. It's a wonderful scene. Odo's body posture is wonderfully, I don't want to say awkward so much as uncertain. Kira's is much more closed. She, wonderful props to not a visitor here. There's a sort of a, coiled spring that's that's you know it's taut 
or not taught, the opposite. You know, it's crushed down. It's ready to spring out at any moment as she's just there and she's you know, doing this whole thing with almost precise movements in an attempt to appear casual while at the same time being ready to, to lunge at a moment's notice. It's very well done. It's also... I, I don't have much else to say about the scene other than how great it is and how fantastic fascinating is that Odo is so amazingly bluntly honest. At no point in time does he lie to Kira in the past. I would argue that it doesn't even occur to him to. Why would he? I also kind of love how that scene then, and this is the transition I wanted to mention, the one transition I want to bring out, we transition straight from that scene of Odo's blunt, flagrant interrogation to Odo columboing the wife. Uh, on the off chance you don't know what I mean, because I know some of you aren't super old. No, no offense. Um, Columbo was an older uh, kind of detective show, and Columbo's whole shtick, and he was really good at this, was he would portray himself. He always had the cigar. Yeah, one more question. He, he, he would always portray himself in this way so that people would underestimate him. He would ask questions about things he already knew, and he would present himself in a way as if he wasn't really on top of the situation. But he was, he was, he was brilliant. And he was watching their reactions. It's like if you, I'm trying to think of a really mundane example. If I watch you take a drink of one of my drinks, then I wander over and I say, hey, are you kind of thirsty? And I watch your response. And if you say, well, yeah, kind of, I look for how you react, not what you react. Because I already know the answer. You're not thirsty. You just took a drink, right? I know the answer. I want to see how you react to being posed with the question. And then, again, in very, very classic Columbo fashion, oh, just one more thing. I've noticed that you were able to pay the bills, <laughs> but you weren't able to pay the bills before. Your power was out. Oh, yes, I got a loan from a friend. And she implies she's having an affair with the guy, which is a nice way to deflect. But Odo immediately is like, yeah, okay, uh-huh, yeah. Interest, again, interesting to see which direction she tries to lie on that one. Now, it's, it's, so I mentioned how everyone in this episode is, is a bad liar, except for Dukat. There's actually an exception to that. There's technically two exceptions. But one of those exceptions is Quark. Quark smoothly and effortlessly deflects. His method of lying is interesting, because his method of lying is that he doesn't lie. He deceives. Now, I've always maintained the distinction between these two. A lie is, I am Elvis. Right? That's a lie. Um, it, to deceive would be if you ask me if I'm Elvis, and I'm saying, well, I mean, you know, I'm not really allowed to talk about it. And then I cut off there, leaving the implication, leaving the inference that you can then pick up and run with on your own. That's a deception. Now, obviously, I'm not Elvis. If I was, I'd probably have a little more money and be better in every way. But the point being, you look at that, you look at Quark, and he just kind of effortlessly and smoothly dodges around. So I guess he is still technically not a good liar. He is just an excellent deceiver. It is not until Odo physically restrains him and is like, no, I know you are lying. And once again, we see that contrast. In the past, Odo would be like, oh, yes, of course, and just kind of smile and nod at the lie. Here, when confronted with the lie, he physically grabs Quark. You are lying. You could see the nuance in the development of the last five years in Odo's character, in his ability to have more shade to him, more shadings, more gradient. So, <laughs> there's this wonderful little pit 
where Odo says, nobody had to t teach me the justice trick. And I kind of like how he portrays justice. I'm not saying this is my definition or any other definition, but he presents it as the idea that justice is mathematics, that it is a very binary, basic situation. Equation, balanced out, this side, this side, done, and that's all justice is. I also love how he is being confronted with how gray justice can become. It's an implication because, okay, so Kira killed the guy, you know, spoiler alert. But the point is that at that scene where he talks about the justice trick and how he thought justice was blind, but now I'm not sure anymore, you can tell that by this point in time, Odo has basically pieced it together. And now he is concerned because he knows his friend, who he has become very close to, committed a murder that he was investigating several years ago, five years ago. And... He's not sure what to think or feel about that anymore. He now understands some of the more gray of social interactions and no longer can see justice as a pure mathematic formula. It's a nice scene, very character building. Um, I also love his confrontation with Kira, where he's like, you don't... It's, it's funny because she also doesn't actually lie very well. There is only one lie she tells in the whole thing. No, I didn't kill him. That's the only lie she tells. The deception is, you notice she immediately after that lie, because she's actually not a good liar, immediately after that lie, she immediately tries to segue into a completely older thing and starts flinging truth at him. Truth, 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 truth. You can look it up. Truth, 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 truth. And she effectively rats out another collaborator, uh, excuse me, another resistance member, sorry, um, who was working on a similar mission in order to get, get across the attack. Now, this is, again, a massive deception in order to try and segue around the situation because and this is the thing this is what's really important for me this is the core element of the episode the mystery is good the character stuff is good but this episode is all about kira and odo past kira lied and then deceived odo in order to save her life now that is acceptable i know that sounds horrible but that is acceptable. Under the exact circumstances as presented, I think that is morally understandable. And I don't think Odo holds that against her. Not really. What, what, really, what I really love is towards the end, she says, you'll never prove I killed my husband. And he says, I know. And Kira just looks at him and then looks at him as it, as she, as it clicks with her that she has now realized what he has realized. And then we, the audience, for anybody who hasn't caught up yet, as, as it's like, oh my god, Kira was the one who actually did it all along. Which is another classic mystery trend. You present the obvious suspect, you explain away why they're not guilty, and then they were actually guilty because such and such. What I love about the final confrontation scene between Odo and Kira is all over the place. First of all, there is some wonderfully natural chemistry between Nana Visitor and Renée Bergenois. Second of all, the way that she so desperately defends herself to him is indicative of how much she is afraid, of how much her friendship to him matters, about how his opinion of her matters. You could just see the emotional vulnerability all over the place. This time, she lied to him again, or perhaps more accurately, she deceived him again, because she didn't tell him any time over the last year plus when they have been friends and have had a good working relationship and like interacting with each other, and at no point has she bothered to tell him, it was me. First time she lied and deceived to save her life. This time she did it to try and save her friendship. 
And that's what really hurts Odo. The second one, you could have told me. You could have told me the truth. This doesn't have to affect our friendship, but can you trust me the same way ever again? And Odo says nothing in response, because Odo is a terrible liar. I really like this episode, if it's not obvious. And I really enjoy the character dynamics. I really enjoy the presentation of both. I also want to mention one last thing, just very briefly, but this is entering spoiler territories. So on the off chance you're watching DS9 for the first time along with me, uh, this is your cue to go ahead and stop the video. So we'll go to put a spoiler warning up somewhere around here. I still haven't decided what I'm going to use as a spoiler indicator, but I'll, I'll come up with something. There we go. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Odo is very much a founder in this episode, and we kind of see that mentality there. Now, it's worth noting the founders haven't even been designed yet. They haven't even been envisioned by this point in time. But you can see how the founders grew from the character studies on Odo. In other words, Odo, from an out-of-character perspective, was effectively the template for the founders. And thus, in character, we can see how the founders were a template for Odo. He mentions two things, the justice trick as a pure mathematical formula. No morality, no ethics. Now that's important because that is very founder. And the second thing that's tossed in there is the idea of five years never having closed a case. That is very founder. Remember, the founders, as has been mentioned by out-of-character stuff interviews, were willing to wait centuries to deal with the Federation and had already started infiltrating working on it. They are exceptionally patient. There's a quest in STO where you go and rescue one of the founders who's been in prison for like 20 years. And to her, this is just acceptable because they are enormously patient. They are effectively immortal, and they have no problem taking their time getting things done. They'll get what they want eventually, one way or the other, it's just a matter of how they get there. So you can see that founder mentality in Odo. Five years on a murder case? Yeah, I can wait that long. That's nothing. I like that little thing. That's, I just wanted to share that and share how you can see the, the development of what will eventually become the founders right here. That's all I've got. I hope you have enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.